I'm Jason Kelly, and this is the Practicing History Podcast. Practicing History is a podcast about the way we construct our pasts, not just how professionals do it, but how all of us, every day, tell stories, speak, think, and reflect historically. Through doing this, we are all historians. For those of you who have been listening to the Practicing History podcast over the last few weeks, you know that we're in the midst of a series about outbreaks, pandemics, and uh, this is because, uh, of course, we're living in this historic moment when we're all experiencing and responding to the COVID-19 outbreak that's affected so many people's lives uh, around the globe. But uh, as historians, this gives us a moment to reflect back on other outbreaks and plagues that have happened throughout history as a way to think about these moments of crisis, to provide insight into the way people think about their societies, how societies are organized, how people use those moments as a way to see how their society is function or how their society is functioning and critiquing the status quo. Today, we are going to move into the modern world. In the previous two episodes, we've looked at the plague of Athens during the Peloponnesian War. We've looked at the Roman Antonine Plague. Today, we are going to look at the 1918 influenza pandemic. And this was a global pandemic. And because of this, uh, and because it took place in the towards the end of World War One, we're going to look at this pandemic or this flu outbreak as a global event. My guest today is Dr. Leah Parody. She's an associate professor of history at Slippery Rock University, and she's also the director of their Humanities Center there. Professor Parody is an expert in the history of empire. And so she makes an ideal person to bring in to talk about the global implications of the 1918 influenza pandemic. I'm with Leah Parody, an associate professor of history at Slippery Rock and co-director of the Stonehouse Center for Public Humanities. How are you doing, Leah? I'm doing fine, how are you? Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So you're teaching a course right now on the history of pandemics. Can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> well, um, the course is uh, called Spotlight on the Past, colon, because we historians love colons, Spotlight on the Past, Pandemics, and it's, uh, a course that the history department, the spotlight on the past part is a course that the history department created to fulfill a new um, category in our new uh, gen ed program. So the idea was to have all of the faculty create courses that focused on a particular moment or a particular theme and to each do their own thing, but to use the course to introduce students to how people in the humanities ask and answer questions. And by doing that to try and help students to understand why the humanities are important, the fact that we are all always, in fact, engaging with the humanities, that every 
time we're telling ourselves a story or reading a story or listen to a story when we were two, that basically we were engaging in the humanities. But people don't sort of think of those things as the humanities. They think of them as just the wallpaper of their lives. So um, these courses were, the idea was to get students to really think more actively about how human beings ask and answer questions through these particular disciplines, the, the arts, the humanities, social sciences, etc. And so I thought, well, pandemics is great, uh, you know, so to speak. Pandemics are good because moments of crisis, you always get these heightened responses. It's always very, you know, this, historians love these kinds of moments because everything is in sharp relief. Uh, and so that's what made me think that it would be a good way to get students to, to realize the sort of uh, the constancy of the humanities, but also because it's uh, the reason why I picked pandemics is because it's a, a way to uh, get at the big questions. Because when you're dealing with something like pandemics, you're dealing with, you know, who am I? What do I owe to other people? What happens when I die? What is sin? You know, am I a good person? I mean, these really big questions are the ones that get asked in these life and death situations. So, so that was the reason for creating the course. And then um, we were just finishing off our Black Death case study when uh, it was announced that we weren't going to be going back into the classroom. So how have, well, tell me, how did students respond at the beginning of class and how have their responses to the course changed over the course of the class itself? Well, uh, the, so the three case studies are the Black Death, the flu pandemic of 1918, and HIV AIDS. That was the, that was the master plan. And so in dealing with the Black Death, the coronavirus was sort of starting to percolate in the background while we were looking at the Black Death. And so I was already, and the students were already kind of bringing things into the classroom. Um, you know, for example, in talking about the Black Death, we talked about um, uh, people being scapegoated um, in particular, uh, Jews uh, being, uh, being accused of poisoning populations and the horrific uh, pogroms against uh, the Jews. Uh, I, I, there are things, you know, that I've learned because I'm not I'm a medievalist. And so, you know, some of the things that I uh, learned about this, I did not realize that the city of... Um, uh, Basel in in Switzerland um, actually took all of the Jews in the city and put them all on an island in the middle of the river and burned them to death. So I'm teaching my students uh, this and asking them to think about what how this is a human response and you know, what are the questions that that begs and, and what answers are people trying to get for themselves in engaging in that kind of behavior? Um, and then that was right around the time when we first 
or I guess about a week later, was when we first started hearing about Chinese Americans and Asian Americans being attacked because people were blaming them for the coronavirus. So very quickly, even in dealing with a, a pandemic from hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the students were already making connections and, and seeing the timelessness of human behavior, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, you said you were planning on teaching the 1918 flu, which is the section you're in right now, I assume, with the students? Yes. So I gave my first lecture on the flu pandemic as a little kind of intro, um, setting the scene. Here's what the world looked like when the flu pandemic hit, the sort of context. That was the last class that I did before we went off for spring break. They had just had their midterm for uh, the Black Death. And then I gave that lecture and then I sent them on their way. Um, and so it's from that moment that all of it has had to um, be moved online. But of course, the really um, uh, sort of eerie thing for the students is that everybody started referencing the 1918 flu pandemic. So they have this material, they're reading their um, really well um, put together a document collection book that um, Susan Kingsley Kent um, uh, edited, uh, the Bedford series, which is, which is great. Um, but now they're hearing on the news, they're hearing, you know, they're reading a newspaper, all of these things that are all drawing these parallels to uh, 1918. And the students are, um, I think, feeling very empowered by their knowledge that they already have from learning about the Black Death. And now the fact that they're engaging in this, um, this case study uh, about 1918 now. So you said that before they went off, you were setting them up with the context of the 1918 uh, influenza pandemic. And since that's what we're talking about today, I was just wondering if maybe you can give us a little sense of what that context looked like. Well, one of the things that uh, everybody knows about the flu pandemic is that it took place uh, in the last year of the war. And, and so this is, this is World War World I. War One, yeah. And so uh, having students understand that World War One, because of the particular circumstances of World War One, there was a very elevated level of transportation and the movement of people that had not been typical just four years earlier, and that would return to not being typical a couple of years afterwards, that really it's this spike in the movement of people. And that because of that, even though the flu pandemic is 100 years ago, the movement of people bears a closer resemblance to the circumstances we have now than for example, the movement of people in the late 30s, or possibly, I, I don't know this, I'm, but I 
would imagine, even in the 1950s, that the 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 just the movement of people from one country to another wasn't anywhere near what it was either at that moment of gigantic transport ships or today. So getting the students to understand that even though it was 100 years ago, that that's part of the context is that there's all of this movement. Um, and that's crucial because, of course, the flu pandemic didn't just happen in the context of World War I. It really did happen in many ways because of World War I. Because even though the flu virus first emerged in uh, a county in Kansas, it very quickly transferred to a huge uh, army camp that was 300 miles away in Kansas that um, had people from the county where the influenza began um, visiting people at the camp who like, one, one man, his son got sick, but his son what, didn't seem to be too sick yet. And so he kept his plans of going to the camp to visit his brother who had enlisted. And he wanted to see his brother before his brother shipped out. And so he still went. But while he was away, his son got much, much worse. He possibly is one of the people that brought it to the camp. There was also somebody else who was, went home on leave who lived in that county, went home, visited people, and then went back to the camp. So there's, it's not just sort of one person, but there's a, a couple of candidates who brought the, the virus into this overcrowded camp that was normally supposed to have 40,000 people and it had 60,000 um, soldiers because they were all about to you know, head off. And then they were carried on giant troop ships, which then collected more soldiers from other places and then slowly but surely made it made their way to the eastern seaboard and got on troop ships and went across the Atlantic to England. And so it really is because of uh, the war that we had such a massive outbreak that traveled so far so quickly. You know, this is, this is interesting because the last two uh, sessions of this podcast have looked at the uh, outbreak of the war, the, the outbreak of the plague in the Peloponnesian War, and then the Antonine Plague, and both of them were tied to troop movements. And so this is the third pandemic or outbreak that we've looked at in a row uh, that is tied to warfare and transportation and movement of individuals who live in very close proximity to each other and moving through multiple lands. And so that brings me to another question. You're a historian of empire. And so 1917, 18 isn't just a moment of the war itself in Europe, but it's a global war. It's a world war. And so can you talk a little bit about the context of empire in relationship to this pandemic? Yes. Well, uh, many people aren't aware of just how many uh, soldiers on the Western Front 
or support staff for soldiers on the Western Front were actually people who were uh, colonized peoples brought to Europe from various uh, European empires, colonial holdings. And so because there was this huge uh, uh, population of people who were in uh, the, the trenches of the Western Front from Nigeria, from South Africa, from India, eventually those soldiers went home and they went home on giant troop ships that in many cases saw the beginning of the infection rate happening much like our cruise ships today while they were en route and so by the time the ships landed and in some cases it wasn't even that they had arrived all the way home it was that they had to stop along the way to take on provisions to take on fuel and that at that point, if they didn't know already that, the, that there was this huge contamination of the population, people went on shore while this was happening. So the first um, imperial outbreak uh, that was reported was actually in Freetown in Sierra Leone. And it wasn't because a troop ship was that was the end point. It was that it was a troop ship that was headed to South Africa and it was stopping on its way, but it came onto the docks and then exploded out into the population. Um, and of course, these colonial, um, uh, colonial governments, colonial administrations and the colonial uh, societies were not equipped to deal with this. And it really, um, it really sort of stripped bare what the reality was in terms of the 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 lack of care for uh, colonized populations uh, and the uh, poor sanitation, uh, poor living conditions, um, the lack of medical facilities that the um, that the African or Indian populations uh, had compared to their European counterparts. So for example, in, um, uh, in uh, India, the portion of the population that, uh, that was European that got uh, the flu was 25%. The portion of the indigenous population that got the flu was somewhere between 35 and 55%, but the death rate for um, people who had the, who got the flu in the indigenous population was much, 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 much higher than it was for the European population. Um, and among children, very high because so many children worked in sweatshops and things like that in the Indian subcontinent. And so that close proximity meant that while fewer children died in Western countries, more children died uh, in places like India. And, and speaking of deaths, what are, what are we talking about? Well, the, the death rate of the flu pandemic has changed a lot over the last couple of decades. 
And uh, in part, that is because the reporting rate in uh, colonial societies and then also in um, less advanced societies that did not have sort of, uh, health service reporting uh, just were completely inaccurate. And so uh, about um, 50 years ago, the, the general thought was that there was uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 17 million people died. Then it jumped up to uh, the, the established number was 50 million people died. But now most of the people who do research on the flu pandemic estimate, I mean, it's a very broad estimate because of the unreliability of the reporting, but that probably closer to 100 million people died worldwide from the flu pandemic. So the, the numbers that are now quoted is between 50 and 100 million, which is a pretty broad range. But I think that we can be fairly confident that it's probably more the 100 million. It's just that scholars don't like to be quoting those numbers categorically without being able to point to hard evidence. But the problem is, is that it's just very difficult to get anything except kind of referential evidence, you know, by looking at depletion of population and occupations and things after it happened. Right. And these numbers are just stunning because when you think of World War One, people think of the war dead. But if you think of World War One as at least a primary reason for this uh, pandemic, uh, then you're looking at numbers in, you know, the tens of millions beyond what we think of when we think of World War One. Yeah, and, and that actually is also another reason why the numbers were sort of lowballed for a while is that soldiers were reported as having died at the front um, and not that they had died of the flu. And so it masked how many people, how many soldiers actually died from the flu and also from pneumonia because that was another thing is that a lot of places reported that what somebody died of was pneumonia but the pneumonia was caused by the flu it was what the flu turned into when it got worse and so for those are all con contributing reasons why the numbers have changed but to just give you what you're talking about about the the numbers of soldiers that died um, in October of 1918, which, you know, those of us who study World War I, we know that that was a very deadly month in the war, but more soldiers died from the flu in October of 1918 than died of wounds from battle. So that's, that gives you a sense of, and it's, projected, I mean, we never want to do sort of what if history, but it's, it's thought that one of the, the reasons why the German army was not able to fully capitalize on the fact that they no longer had to keep up the Eastern Front once they came to an agreement with now revolutionary Russia 
1917 that they weren't fully able to pivot and move and bring all of those troops to the Western Front and perhaps be able to, you know, if not win the war, but perhaps to uh, put up a, a fight for longer was that Germany was decimated by the flu as well. And it just, it just made it impossible for them to, as I say, fully capitalize on the fact that they now only had one front to deal with. So we're talking uh, about the primary infection of this. It's an H1N1 flu, uh, an avian flu. Yes. It, yes, it is. And so we have the primary infection of the flu and then the secondary infections like pneumonia in a period before antibiotics are available. Yes. In fact, um, you want to think of it even as a period when germ theory was still something that really only a kind of elite group of people knew about and understood. Because germ theory, the idea that you could, uh, that a germ caused a specific disease and that you could track that germ, you know, isolate it, uh, match that specific, specific germ to specific symptoms therefore identify it as a particular disease. Uh, that, that whole concept of germ theory had only really been finally, firmly established as the way to, that scientists should look at things around 1880, 1880, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And so if you think about that, and you think about the fact that at the turn of the century, um, most American medical schools did not actually require people to take science classes in order to, or do lab work in order to become doctors. That in fact, most medical schools um, in the, so most medical schools in the 1870s didn't require um, students to take science classes. And um, they also weren't even connected to universities or to, um, to hospitals. And that when the Johns Hopkins, as it was known then, the Johns Hopkins opened in 1893, it was the very first like research, you know, laboratory medical school that existed. Uh, and so by the, when you're talking about 1918, you've got all sorts of medical professionals who got there, who studied under that old system. They didn't go to a medical school where they had to do lab work. They didn't go to a medical school where they were doing, where there were research labs. They went to a medical school where, you know, who knows what it was they studied, but at the end of the day, that college gave them a certificate that said that they were doctors. And so in 1918, the, the, the governments are having to explain germ theory to people as they are explaining, you know, what people should be doing to avoid 
um, to avoid getting infected. And so this is one of the terrible ironies today is that now we, this is a long established thing, but because of the culture that we have allowed to uh, grow up around us over the last generation or so, we denigrate science, we don't believe experts, um, you know, scientific facts are now sort of open to whether it's convenient for you to believe them or not. Um, and so here we, we're supposed to already know all of this stuff and have this be a hundred plus years worth. Um, whereas in 1918, for many people, this was completely new. And so dealing with all of these things, uh, the flu, the secondary infections, no antibiotics, the origins of germ theory, how are doctors, nurses, medical professionals on the ground responding to what is uh, this huge influx of uh, sick individuals? Well, initially, many of them are uh, trying to put it into a framework that they're already familiar with. So, which may sound familiar, but sort of saying, look, this is just a flu, it will be fine. Yes, there was a slightly more serious outbreak, but really it's not that big of a deal. So that's, that's one of the responses that you get. Um, also, um, because the flu was such a common ailment before this, it wasn't actually a reportable disease. You weren't mandated to report an outbreak to the National Centers of Health and Medicine, you know, DC or the equivalent in London or wherever, because it was just the flu. And so it was, it, it was more difficult for doctors who did see that this was maybe different to get the attention of the authorities because they were saying it was just a severe flu. And so you had a lot of authorities sort of going, yeah, well, you don't have to report that. It's just the flu. And of course, their attention was also, you know, government's attention were very much turned towards the war. So there's... Um, that part of it as well. Um, but then you start to get doctors and particularly nurses and particularly regional nurses who are working like going out to mining camps and logging camps and working in small communities where they're traveling from town to town and they're seeing this and seeing that it is far more serious than any flu that they've seen before and that it has a much higher uh, death rate. Um, but again, they are rural nursing staff. They're, they don't have authority or voice to, to sort of get um, people's attention. And then finally, there's also the fact that you have wartime censorship. And so even in the trenches, because of censorship, a lot of outbreaks of acute flu in different parts of the trenches were, were um, sort of dismissed as what was, what was called trench fever, which was really just this kind of endemic 
version of la grippe, you know, the, the flu that just that went around the trenches. And so because one doctor or one senior officer in one part of the front didn't understand that this was reproducing all down the line, they are more likely to go, oh, okay, it's just a bad round of the flu, rather than having a chance to put together that all of this was the, the same thing. And that's why it ended up being called the Spanish flu, was simply because Spain was neutral, wasn't involved in the war, and therefore did not have censorship in place. And so its newspapers actually reported that there was a flu outbreak when the flu arrived in Spain. And so then it got dubbed as the Spanish flu as if it somehow started there, when in fact it was just that they openly reported that they, that they had it. Let's just take a kind of a macro level approach to this and look at how this all played out across the globe itself. How did it go away? You already talked a little bit about some of the asymmetries in uh, how people experienced the flu uh, in part, in large part because of uh, colonial governments. And so I was just wondering if you could talk about how this, this kind of resolves itself uh, in the global context. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that people are talking about now a lot is this idea that perhaps the flu will, that, that the um, coronavirus will sort of dip away in the summer because of the temperatures and um, that that might happen uh, now as well. Um, that, that, that did happen, but what also people are not remembering from then when they're hanging on to this notion of maybe that, that there'll be this dip is that the fall of 1918 was overwhelmingly the most deadly period of the pandemic. And in part, that's because the virus mutated. As we know, the flu virus mutates quite rapidly, which is why we always have to get a different flu shot each year and why sometimes it doesn't even work because they put together a cocktail of the various flu strains that they think are going to be the dominant ones and that's how they put together the flu vaccine and if they guess wrong that then we don't have the same um, immunity uh, the common cold is actually a coronavirus um, and again it's a, a, a virus that mutates a lot which is why you can get the cold and then get the cold again and that you know that that happens um, but so the flu did dip in the summer, but it then mutated into a much more deadly strain of the flu. So in the fall and the winter of 1918 is when you have the, the real pinnacle of the, of the infectious rate. And that is also, by the way, made worse by people not, uh, uh, governmental leaders not putting in place social distancing uh, orders. Uh, Philadelphia notoriously um, had its first cases of the virus and then the government chose to not cancel a gigantic war bond rally. And then as you know, within days of that rally, 
the um, the infection rate in Philadelphia skyrocketed. Um, but then it starts to die down over the 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 sort of the winter and into into the winter of 1919. And then we get another uptick, the last surge, which is the second most deadly surge of the of the pandemic. The worst is in the fall of 1918. The second worst is in the spring of 1919. And the lightest one was that one that happened in late spring, early summer of, of 1918. The infection rate that you get in the 1919 uptick, a lot of that is happening in societies that have now had the flu make its way to them uh, after, um, uh, after you know, Western Europe and, and North America has, has had the flu. So um, Latin America, Asia, Africa are seeing these rolling waves of the pandemic taking them much more into 1919. And it destabilizes governments. It destabilizes colonial authorities because they are accused quite rightly of not managing the situation properly, of not quarantining ships in the harbor, of not getting on top of it, of not providing enough medical um, facilities for indigenous populations while taking care of the European population. Um, or in Latin America, you've got um, similar kinds of things, accusations about not putting um, quarantine measures in place, uh, where there's accusations made that, there's, that, that, that the authorities are not taking seriously enough what was happening elsewhere in the world, as if maybe it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't arrive. But then you have other places like, for example, Russia, where it's in the throes of a civil war after the revolution. And so the flu and cholera and other diseases that are, are um, endemic when you've got refugee populations, when you've got um, mass people moving into cities to get away from whatever, that all of that means that you've got this soup of diseases all sort of mixing together and the flu becomes just one of many things that uh, those overtaxed governments are trying to deal with. So that that's fantastic. Thanks for covering all of that. I want to move back down from the global and look at the United States because while uh, colonial governments in places around the globe are mismanaging the situation, we have Jim Crow America handling the situation. Um, and uh, we have, we're at the height of segregation in the United States. So how does race play a factor in the United States and the, uh, in the context of this flu pandemic? Well, it's interesting that you that you um, bring that up and and in talking about Jim Crow because one of the um, one of the 
ways that the U.S. government, whether it's local or national, kind of betrays their concerns in in documents that when you read them, where, where it, do, it it isn't explicitly stated, but you can understand what their concern is, is worried about when outbreaks on military bases jump out into the civilian population. And you can see that part of what that is, is that it is this awareness that there is not sufficient medical facilities or treatment for people in the civilian population because of a variety of things that not just Jim Crow, although most, you know, not most, let's say many of these, um, of these army bases are in the South. Uh, and so there's an awareness that once you get off that army base, you are not in the same level of sort of first world country that you are if you're, you know, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, right? Um, and uh, and so so there's so it is tied to um, uh, racial segregation, but also even tied simply to the fact that the progressive era is only just kind of the the benefits of the progressive area era are only just starting to take root. And so you've still got incredible tenement um, slums that are are African-American uh, tenants, but also Irish, Russian, you know, all sorts of different immigrant populations. Most people's um, homes uh, in these kinds of slums, whether they're in the Deep South or in cities like Philadelphia, um, uh, they're, they still have outhouses. They don't have, you know, running water in every home. There's maybe one um, pump for like the whole building. You know, you know, you've still got all of those kinds of situations in place and therefore an awareness on the part of medical staff in particularly military medical staff that if it jumps off the bases, you're going to have you know that there's there's not the the capacity to deal uh, to deal with that situation, um, and the speed with which it moves is something else. That the um, you know the there's this um, uh, very famous case in um, in. Uh, uh, in uh, Massachusetts, uh, a place called Camp Devons, uh, which was outside Boston. And it was where people came, the troop ships came back into Commonwealth Pier in Boston. Uh, and on the pier, which is sort of like a receiving facility, people started saying that they felt sick. Then Camp Devons, which was out just outside of Boston, somebody reported to the infirmary saying they felt sick. Within uh, a week or within a day, there was a dozen 
people who were reporting sick, but they thought that they had meningitis. This is in September because one of the big um, symptoms of this flu was actually hemorrhaging. So people were just spewing blood and then also this cyanosis where they would be turning blue because the fluid would be building up in their lungs so much that they couldn't breathe. And that's very much tied to the coronavirus uh, model today. But the, the, the point is that Camp Devons is just one of these examples of where it went from that one dozen people on September 8th who they thought had meningitis by September 26th, 6,000 soldiers were in the camp infirmary with severe flu. And that was only because they told, they said basically everybody else who's sick just has to stay where they are. So in fact, like probably tens of thousands of soldiers at Camp Devons were in this severe stage of this um, mutated, more severe version of the flu, and that basically once that gets out into the general population, those who are already underserved are being struck very quickly, dying very quickly, and then bodies are not being collected. There's nobody to collect the bodies. You have um, an incredible rate of orphan, you know, children being orphaned. You've got, you know, all of these kinds of things are striking so quickly across the whole population, but particularly those who are poorer, that there is, there's no mechanism in place that can possibly um, make up for the systemic um, failures to provide services to those people already. So it really lays bare the inequities that were already in place to like, an incredibly stark degree. So I just have one more thing I want to ask you about, and that is uh, about the longer tail of this flu pandemic. To what extent does this pandemic have on the ways that national governments begin to think about public health and perhaps health systems in their countries? Yes, I mean, it's, it's interesting you ask that question because that is definitely one of the, um, the legacies is that you have the creation of public health departments all over the world. South Africa, um, puts in place a public health um, uh, uh, facility, of course, geared towards its European population. Um, uh, various cities and states in the United States bring into, into existence uh, public health services, public health facilities. Um, governments in the midst of the, in the throes of the pandemic sort of create public health initiatives to try and first get out the message, you know, how to, you know, do social distancing, why it's not a good idea to spit on the street, why, 
you know, you shouldn't cough or sneeze right on somebody. In fact, they equate it to being like, um, there's this one uh, public service announcement that is basically, a, I think it's from North Carolina that equates sneezing or coughing without covering your face to be like the Germans and their machine gun fire, right? And that's like right on the posters, right? So public health departments are created to try and educate people and then to try and deal with um, this incredibly fast moving uh, beast. But it's good that they, even though in the case of the the actual flu pandemic, it's in many cases sort of too little too late, they are able to, um, they are able to have things in place for the rolling flu, the returns of the flu virus that happen over the next few years. Because that's the other thing that unfortunately that we need to keep in mind is that this isn't something that just disappears. It's something that comes back regularly over the next few years until it mutates out of being as lethal a version. And also um, you get that herd immunity where so many people have had this particular version of the flu that it's no longer as lethal or impactful because of that. So, so the fact that everybody kind of in, if you want to think about it one way, sort of closed the barn door after the horse had bolted, creating public health departments after the flu pandemic, they did at least create them and have all of those protocols in place for things that came in the 1920s um and uh and you know on into the future well great leah thank you so much for participating in this uh this podcast this has been really great to learn about uh how this affected uh, the globe in in 1918 and uh, the years after well thank you very much for having me it's been it's been great talking about it thanks so much for listening to the practicing history podcast Next time, we'll continue our theme of outbreaks and plagues and pandemics through history. Until then, if you could go on to iTunes and rate us, that would be wonderful. If you would like to visit my website, jasonmkelly.com, you will see other content, uh, blog content, other recordings that might be of interest to you. And of course, you can uh, drop a note to us through the Twitter account. Uh, use my personal account at Jason underscore M underscore Kelly. So until next time, please stay healthy and take care of each other.